Hi everybody, this is Andrea Goldmarks for the Boom Goddess, and we're going to do a replay. Recent world events, specifically the protesting and riots centered around racial inequality these past few weeks, remind us of an episode we recorded back in July of 2016. Okay, different circumstances, but similar emotions. And at that time, there were several international terrorist events, episodes of racial violence exploding here and abroad, and the shooting of several police officers in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We felt very deeply that we couldn't go on until we sat down and processed these events, eager to see maybe what we could learn. Unfortunately, we seem to find ourselves in a similar chaos of emotions right now, spring 2020. We hope that the replay of this episode will serve as a reminder of sorts, because we know the saying, if we don't study history, we're doomed to repeat it. Good day. This is Boom Goddess podcast. And this is one of your hosts, Jennifer Davis Page. I'm sitting here with my two beautiful co-hosts, B.B. Peters and Dr. Andrea Gould. And we welcome all of our listeners today. I think that you'll be fascinated about the topic that we have chosen for today's show. You know, there's no one, not even the least in touch person that hasn't been affected in some way by the events and discourse over the past year, the past month, and by acceleration over the past week or two. And it just felt like we really couldn't go on without having an in-person conversation that touches on all of this chaos. It's sort of like it started that feeling began in our intestines or maybe in our heart even, and then it migrated into our brain and we seem to have a hard time uh, letting go of it. So that's why we're here. Yeah, sometimes something doesn't let us go. And I think that's what brought us to choosing this topic today, which is questions that have no right to go away, semicolon, the crisis of chaos. And what chaos? What's happening out there? It feels as though the Earth, the planet Earth, is on fire. Uh, I see it in my eyes where little fires are popping up all over the place, whether it be France or the U.S., just everywhere. And one has to wonder, why is it, why are we feeling such an amount of that happening right now at this time? Or why is there such a quickening of these um, tremendous assaults on one another through the planet, throughout the planet. And they're not little fires. These are big fires that have been going on. And, you know, at, at one point we had um, chaos every once in a while. But now it seems like every week there's some awful chaos going on in different parts of the world. And these terrorists are terrorizing people all over the world. At one point it was centralized, but now it seems like every continent is being affected by this. I think that it's probably never really been centralized. I think that the extreme connectivity that we have and the technology that enables us to not only connect, but to see an, an eyewitness report of any and every injustice, any and every act of violence, up close and personal, 
that's the big innovation, I think, that has brought it so undeniably home to all of us in a lot of reasons. I mean, in copycat reasons and mimicking reasons and in the way, you know, we've been um, churning the pot and roiling and boiling the, the waters with inflammatory rhetoric and um, inflammatory behaviors that um, that find likely vulnerable people that want to destroy. When I looked at the news the other day and they had that crazy extremist that drove that truck down the boulevard of one of the most beautiful cities in the world. And I had been on that boulevard three times in my life, walking along the Mediterranean. It could have been me. For some reason or another, you just don't think that they're, those cities, Paris and Nice, are ever going to be hit, that they're they're going to be so cherished by the world for its beauty that nobody dare conduct any kind of terror on those boulevards. But yet they have. But I think that's also part of the strategy of terrorism is to do unpredictable and surprising things when you least expect it, when you most expect it, in the places you would expect it, in the places that you wouldn't expect it, like in Orlando or here in Tucson a couple of years ago or in San Bernardino. Really, nowhere is immune. It seems that we're all trying to grapple with what is right now, what is going on, and we're seeking answers that are making sense to us or that could make possibly sense to to us. And we want to possibly shed some light on our understanding of those fires that are burning. How do these events settle on our skin? How how are they making us feel? How do they affect us as individuals? These are the kind of questions that, that I think about. What work, psychological or spiritual, do we need to undergo in order to remain whole, to continue growing so that we can positively impact the shifts in humanity? I love that you ask it as a question, and it reminds me of a very famous poem by one of our favorite poets, David White. And the last line of the poem is um, about questions that have patiently waited for you, questions that have no right to go away. I have it here, and it's called Sometimes by David White, W-H-Y-T-E. Sometimes, if you move carefully through the forest, breathing like the ones in the old stories who would cross a shimmering bed of dry leaves without a sound, you come to a place whose only task is to trouble you with tiny but frightening requests, conceived out of nowhere, but in this place beginning to lead everywhere. Requests to stop what you're doing right now and to stop what you are becoming while you do it. Questions that can make or unmake a life. Questions that have patiently waited for you. Questions that have no right to go away. And I think maybe we are here at that crossroads. We're all, we all have different questions. I mean, how have the events affected you, our listeners? Like another way of thinking about it is what questions are forming in your own mind or might you be aware that they're conscious or, or even less than conscious, but becoming more conscious as the heat is building and the chaos and the crisis are progressing 
how would you describe your own internal reaction? You know, are you reacting? Are you distracting yourself? Are you becoming emotional? Are you making judgments? Are you curious? Or are you going perhaps inside and looking at um, your state of mind and your state of uh, heart, learning or expressing or feeling those emotions? Um, how are you personally reacting, Jen? What's going on inside of you? Well, I was born in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. It's the capital of Louisiana and a s- s- sleepy little town. Nothing like this ever happened. I had to make a call because I still have cousins that live there. And I, and as soon as I heard that there had been this shooting, the first thing that you want to say is reach out to your family and make sure that no family members were involved. Because at that time, no names had been released as to the officers, names of the officers that had been murdered. I reached out to my family and they assured me every, everything's fine. But everybody was kind of uh, staying in place. They were all staying home because they didn't know if there was going to be any other rounds or if there were other shooters. So, you know, it, it frightens communities. You know, they say that they're, they were out to kill black and white police officers in Baton Rouge, but, you know, bullets don't know where to go. Anybody, any innocent person could have been shot during, during that time. Um, it's, it's, it's frightening. It, it is just frightening. We've all been to Dallas. We know what a beautiful city that is. And not since President Kennedy was assassinated, 52 years ago, has Dallas been on the news like this with with this awful shooting? It makes you feel so sad. It does. And and it also makes you feel, no matter where you live in the country, you can't feel safe anymore. You're vulnerable. And, you know, as a New Yorker present um, in New York during 9-11 and having a brother who worked right there at the World Trade Center, I mean, the... um, the, the panic and I mean, once we experience anything like it, we can, we vibrate with what happened in Paris. We vibrate what happened in Turkey. We vibrate with all of it. And it, it just kicks up the possibility of our really feeling for other people and the, and, and the empathy of that. I mean, we're all vibrating with the whole concentric explosion and Bibi's got tears in her eyes. What's going on with you, Bibi? Well, thanks for mentioning the word empathy because I think that really that's what's coming up. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is so scary and frightening because it can happen, and it has happened to all of us in one way or another. And so the thing that we really are grieving is that there is no safety. There is no sanctuary. I mean, unless you want to limit your life and and not leave your home. Well, when we were children, not growing up was never something that was ever on our minds. We knew we were gonna grow up, become adults, and we thought we would be okay. But there are groups of children right now who don't know if they are gonna grow up. There are signs that I see on the news of, of black children holding up signs saying, please let me grow up. This is awful that our children don't know what, what's ahead of them. Oprah did a piece some years, years ago uh, in Chicago, and she was interviewing children from the projects of Cabrini Green. And she said, these children have no dreams. 
And that's what's happened. Our children, black, white, Hispanic, blue, have no dreams. They don't know what's ahead of them. And that really saddens me. It really saddens me. And I think at the same time that there might be so many who have stopped dreaming, there are also those who are inspired to become heroes. And when you listen to people's stories, they will tell you about the turning points in their lives. Like after 9-11, when they decided to join the army, there's somebody who spoke at the convention last night about that's what happened to him. And he was talking about his father and how his father decided to join the uh, army in World War II. And I remember my own father telling me he was a baseball game in the, at a Yankee game in New York. And when Pearl Harbor occurred, he joined. So right away, what we get to see is we can either shut down or we can um, be inspired to take some kind of action. And historically, there's always been that inspiration of warrior behavior that gets inspired. But it also inspires other people to take other kinds of destructive actions, like any of the people that, that have been described to us, there's a certain amount of mental, mental imbalance. Um, and it doesn't have to do with intelligence. I mean, I think most of these people who've carried out these um, heinous acts have been intelligent people. But is that, that a tag we put on them because they've done such awful things? Or... Has everybody that's that's gunned down police officers and and uh, black youth and white youth and Hispanic youth in America are they all crazy? Are they? I mean, do we put that mental illness tag on everybody? Was there one thing that perhaps they were saying one day and the next day because of of a shooting, it triggered something that perhaps wouldn't have been triggered? if the incident hadn't happened. I'm glad you brought that up because I think that there are a lot of things that stir the pot and there's a lot of rhetoric that acts as inflammatory strikes of match that inspire, and I'll use that word, inspire and motivate people to commit whatever act they feel is consonant with their belief system. It's important we talk about belief systems because it's beliefs and perceptions that really motivate behavior. Andrea Gould here, and if you're just joining us, you may be surprised to know that this episode is a rebroadcast of a recording we did in July of 2016 after racial tensions here and abroad exploded. We hope that this serves us as a reminder of the importance of understanding the interweaving of crisis, contagion, and human reaction, ultimately offering us a deeper sense of compassion for our world. This is B.B. Peters and Dr. Andrea Gold and Jennifer Davis-Page. And we're here to just talk about the impact that emotionally and otherwise we have felt during the past week or two with all the incidences that are happening throughout the world. And we were talking more uh, specifically about empathy. And as we were doing that, I was thinking about Sting's song, Fragile and how that um, sits on my skin and how that it gives me uh, the feelings of empathy to the human race and particularly some uh, facets of our race or certain ethnicities that seem to suffer an unsurmountable amount of pain. 
and how we can feel with them. And yet there are so many that don't have the skill of empathy that simply stop themselves from experiencing a resonance with what someone else can feel. And I'm not even talking about sympathy. Empathy is really a number of skills in one, but certainly the ability to see where someone else is, um, experience where they're coming from, and sometimes to resonate completely emotionally with them. I mean, how would we each describe our internal reactions? I mean, can we tune into our feeling just for a moment and tolerate it? See, most people, they'll feel a feeling, it will be very sharp, and we run from it or we react to it. What happens if we sit with it, as in mindfulness, and we, we sit with it and we just hold still for a little while, even just minutes, but to deepen with that sorrow or to experience what panic feels like and what it inspires us to do or when we see something somebody perpetrating a crime against someone we love I mean if we deepen into that feeling sometimes there's a message within our own emotions that can unfold a little bit of the the mystery that's at the essence of that we tend to respond very quickly and I think there's a lot to be learned by paying attention on a deeper level before we start judging and responding and making decisions. I heard a police officer, a female police officer, right after the Dallas shooting, tell her fellow police officers that if you're afraid of people that don't look like you, you need to leave the police force, which I thought was a very powerful statement. And she also had tears in her eyes when she said that. And in a country like ours, where there's so many faces, so many faces that are different. We have to learn to live together. Well, this brings us to what we were talking about before, which is a belief system. You know, we keep hearing that America was founded on diversity, on multiple ethnicities, and our appreciation of that on the one hand. But we all don't feel that way. There's xenophobia. We are afraid of people that we don't know or faces that we don't recognize. And then these events that are occurring are underlining that very thing because people are then saying, well, I knew I should be afraid of this group or I knew that this group was going to alter my life or bring uh, something to me that I'm not um, expecting. So these events... Reinforce, be, right. reinforce the demonization. Yes. demonization. But what, what makes us fearful? I mean, what I've never felt that, okay? I have never felt that. You know, I look at a Chinese woman or man or, or uh, a Mexican or any national, I've never felt any kind of fear like that. I, 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 I think I'm, I'm blessed that I haven't even though I was raised as a as an African-American person, I think I was more sheltered than some African-Americans growing up. But I, I don't have, I never had those prejudices. And if I don't like you, it's because I don't like you, not because 
of your nationality, your skin color. Well, now we have the influence of upbringing. So my father grew up in New York City in a very homogenized neighborhood of immigrants. And I grew up listening to his stories with exactly that, an appreciation for the diversity, and also really absorbing some of his ethic, which was defender of the underdog, Mm -hmm. if there were underdogs. Mm -hmm. And he was in medicine, and so that kind of fit with being being a healer. And I absorbed it. I mean, we have to say some of it is the way our values are transmitted. Well, both my grandfathers in Baton Rouge really protected their grandchildren and their children from a lot that uh, a lot of things I didn't see um, because they didn't allow us to get on buses. They always drove us everywhere we had to go. They took us. I never drank from a fountain that said for whites only or for coloreds only because they sheltered us from all of that. And there are children that weren't sheltered from that, my age, that have very different experiences. Can you talk a little bit about when you were telling us a story yesterday about your own children in Chicago and living where you lived and how in certain ways you couldn't shelter them from injustice or being uh, objects of suspicion? And I really With wish, no provocation. And I really wish I could have. We moved, I moved from New York City in 1979 to uh, Chicago, Illinois. And I was a single mother of three sons. And I had a great job in Chicago and we lived in a great, great space. We lived on Lakeshore Drive and we were the only African-American family in the building. Um, but there was no, there was no racism in the building. I mean, all the people was there and they were by and large older people. It was an old, old hundred year old building that, that had been redone and a very affluent neighborhood overlooking Lake Michigan. Now, that being said, here I am coming into this building in this beautiful apartment that I'd purchased with three black young teenagers. How old were they? Well, they were 12, 13, and 15 at the time. And never in my wildest dreams did I think that anything was going I didn't move to Chicago frightened that something was going to happen to my children. Well, but, and you had been in New York City. And I had been in New York City, all right? So that wasn't, that wasn't on my radar. But we started experiencing some very difficult times. Uh, for example, living in this beautiful apartment building, One day, my middle son, who was, I guess, 13 at the time, put his key in the door to come into the lobby. Police car stopped and snatched him from the door. Unbelievable. He had key. He had the key in the lock. Snatched him. And he said, what are you doing? I live here. And the police officers called him the N-word and said, you niggers, there's no niggers in this building. Well, they took my son to jail. Why? Because of the color of his skin. And from that time, all the African mother, mothers and fathers were on full alert because you then tell the stories to other parents so that they can be on the lookout and protect their, their sons particularly. And it got to a point where all, all summer, this was the summer of 79, all summer there was incidences with black teenage boys by the police. That was 35 years ago. Things don't seem to have gotten any better. Um, It's a heart 
heartrending story because as I'm, I'm looking at you and, and identifying with being a mother who's working, who's trusting a child to come home from school and, and, and enter their own home and to, and to find that out is just devastating. So of course I had to be called. And at the time I was um, dating a lawyer and he was very instrumental in helping us through this because he told my children, if the police ever pull you over again, you tell them that your father is a lawyer. And after that, after they started saying to the police, and they were pulled over many times that, that summer, they would start saying that the police would not take them to jail. But what about the children that couldn't say that? There was a time that they were rounding up black teenagers and putting them in lineups. All right, innocent black kids. They would go to schools, high schools, and, and arrest them and put them in a lineup so that someone could come and possibly identify the culprit of the crime. Is that mentality? What is that mentality? And that was 35 years ago. One Christmas, my oldest son, who was 15 or 16 at the time, told me he wanted a peacoat. Peacoats were very popular. Navy peacoats are very popular. I had one of those. Did you have one? I did too. So my son said, oh, you know, mom, I'd like to have a peacoat. And I said, fine. So I bought my peacoat. Well, that January, he's standing at a bus stop on the way home from school, and the police car pulls him up and arrests him because a black boy, black teenager with a peacoat, had just hit some older woman over the head, snatched her purse, and ran. Well, my son happened to be three blocks away at another bus stop, and what did they see? They saw a black teenager with a peacoat, and off to jail he went. The woman ultimately died from her injuries, which really, now this becomes a murder. And my son was at a bus stop trying to get home with a peacoat on. So we went down to the police station. And of course, um, my lawyer friend got him out. And then weeks went by, weeks went by because now they're investigating murder. And I'm sitting uh, in my office and I get a call from my son who says there's two police detectives in our house. I let them in because you had to be buzzed in. He had nothing to fear because he didn't do anything. So when they, uh, when they knocked on the door, he let them in. Now he was there by himself. His brothers weren't there. Well, of course he calls my friend who was a lawyer. The lawyer told the police officers, do not ask him any more questions and get out of her home. And they did, but Later in the day, when we went down to the police department and talked to those same detectives that were in my home, they said, well, we knew he didn't do it because of the way he lived. Well, he lived in a great apartment. He had a great room. But guess what? What happens to the children that don't live in a great apartment, who don't have a great room, and are just as innocent? Does that mean because they're poor, they're guilty? The whole system just became... Um, very scary for us. So we had to change our lives a great deal. They didn't take any more buses. I mean, our, the mothers and fathers start chauffeuring these kids wherever they needed to go. Because they weren't safe on they the streets safe. of Chicago. They weren't safe. And at the time, there was a curfew for teenagers in Chicago. So certainly after six o'clock or whatever that curfew time was, 
we had to make sure our kids were not on the street without adult supervision. It was a very difficult time. So here the scars. Oh, he are, absolutely you know, has are, the scars. I mean, we're we're t- we're talking about these scars in the here and now, and you know, and and three of us have done a number of of programs about things that are of interest and topics that are of interest to our age group, but I think that this particular topic is really cutting very close to the bone, and really touching on all kinds of of fear and of paranoia and of the expecting the unexpected and um, and just the outright injustice of it all. I could very well have been one of the, the many mothers in these major cities of black teenage boys that don't have their children anymore, that were gunned down in the streets of these major cities. I could have been one of those women and I thank God every day that I wasn't. But when we all get together and sit and we talk about them growing up, these are stories they tell. These are stories they tell their children. Right. And this is intergenerational PTSD, post-traumatic stress. And we can, even as a Jewish person, as Bibi, a Polish person, that the echoes of persecution and prejudice touch all of us. For more information, visit our website, boomgoddessradio.com, and follow us on Facebook, Boom Goddess. We'd love to hear from you. Your interest powers our programs.